Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 109 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and in news and indeed scenes that delighted me, the BBC has made another programme about monkeys. Primates, BBC One, Sunday night, monkeys! Um, <laughs> any chance they're coming to take over, Mickey? Um, I'm, I think that might be a, a spoiler for episode six of Primates. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I accidentally tortured myself at the weekend. Every rose has its thorn? Yeah, every hawthorn bush has thorns that jab out and go underneath your nails, which, as a friend of mine pointed out to me at the weekend, is actually a verifiable torture method, Mm -hmm. is to stick thorns under people's Ah. nails. Yeah. What are you trying to get out of yourself? Because you're also sleep deprived. (laughs) What what information do you think you've got (laughs) that you also need? I know. I'm Jen Offord, and unbelievably, the best piece of pregnancy advice I've had has come from Hannah Dunleavy. <laughs> really? Yeah. What, what the fuck did I say to you? You told me to get some Rennie instead of Gaviscon, and I've got to tell you, Hannah, it's been an absolute game changer. Didn't I tell you Gaviscon is rubbish? Rennie yeah. is the thing. I used to work with a man who pronounced them Rennies, uh, which was lovely. I like that. What, did he ever give it a proper, like, allo allo flourish? No, he just used to do really weird emphasis on all sorts of words. Like he called it um, blue ray and uh, rye bread. <laughs> it's weird. Renee's. Later on, I chat to Sarah Halls of Winter Comfort, an outreach service for rough sleepers, about how they're coping in the current chaos. I catch up with psychotherapist Jane Watson to find out why all our emotions are clamouring to have a go in lockdown and how we can <laughs> stay sane-ish. Comedian Kate McCabe and I talk about what went wrong in the Democratic primary and Biden's chances against Trump in this year's election. In Jenny Off the Blocks, Megan Rapino will not stop fighting for equality and other stories. That was in caps, by the way. And in Dunleavy Does Disaster, we watch... What the fuck even was that? Sorry, I was still thinking about it. Uh, But first... (laughs) A child for our time, a goose for our time, and dangerous horseshit for our time. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're not entirely sure what the rest of the media is smoking, but we'd like some. Mm, Send it on over. The nation gathered last week to pay tribute to NHS and care workers who have died as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. A one-minute silence was held at 11 o'clock on Tuesday as a mark of respect to those, in inverted commas, fallen heroes. However, the language around such displays of respect has been questioned by the chair of the British Association of Critical Care Nurses, Nikki Credland. Speaking on Newsnight last week, Credland said while the respect shown to NHS workers was heartening, the language was unhelpful and that the public should be reminded that NHS staff are human beings who are vulnerable to the disease, not heroes nor angels martyred for a cause. She added that they are highly skilled professionals who simply want to go and do the job that we train to do and be protected to do it. Which is fair enough, right? Yep. 
As of Saturday, the government said there had been 49 verified deaths of NHS staff as a result of the pandemic, a figure which does not include care staff, or indeed many others according to The Guardian. The newspaper said it had recorded 144 deaths of NHS staff alone that had been reported in the news, but it said that the number was likely to be far higher as not all deaths were in the public domain, and in any case, reported numbers are changing on an almost daily basis. Many of those deaths have, rightly or wrongly, hard to know which given the secrecy around it all, been attributed to the lack of PPE. However, the Chief Coroner for England and Wales said last week that inquests for those who had died would not be a satisfactory means of deciding whether adequate general policies and arrangements were in place for the provision of PPE to healthcare workers. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. Behold! Unto us all has been born a son who is welcomed with trumpets and a great chorus of sycophancy and talk about a child for our time. So yeah, Boris Johnson's latest kid arrived safely last week and the media lost its collective minds. Now, it goes without saying, but just in case it doesn't, we're obviously pleased that mother and child are doing well. But in the same way I was recently left wondering whether having a PM with a personal life so complex he needs to start his tenure with a big old holiday to sort it out could possibly be a good thing. I'm left pondering if the arrival of child number (laughs) to woman number three is really worthy of such an ecstatic response. Not so much Robert Peston, who openly mused whether this child and a near-death experience would change Boris Johnson. Because if at first you don't succeed in becoming a better person, try again and again and again and then try with someone else and then keep repeating it until you're on Jeremy Kyle. And, as any woman will tell you, having lots of kids by different men makes you a total hero in the eyes of the British media. (laughs) Yep. Oh, yeah. Johnson's colleagues were quick to congratulate the man and his current partner, Carrie Simmons, with Hancock calling it a moment of unalloyed joy for the nation before, presumably, checking it wasn't him who was supposed to provide the alloy. It's on a ship. It's coming from Turkey. (laughs) Despite some calls to name the new saviour child Brexit, the couple (laughs) picked Wilfred and then Nicholas as a middle name after two doctors who saved Johnson's life when he was in intensive care. Oh, fuck off. I'm sure they'd rather have had some PPE or a pay rise. Plus, what about the nurses and the cleaning staff involved? I suppose they'll have to wait for his next nine kids by the next four women for recognition. The PM went on to hold one of the daily press briefings looking less than full strength in fact on the patented standard issue illness chart i'd say he was somewhere between grant chaps and prince philip and he chose to explain flattening the curve using an analogy of driving through alpine tunnels which is something we all totally do all the time does that answer your question peston i think peston's still on mute hannah (laughs) i wish Okay, we're stepping sideways from COVID-19 for a moment to look at the domestic abuse bill, which got its second reading in Parliament last week. The reading comes amid a surge of abuse cases throughout lockdown. After three weeks in lockdown, there has been a rise in killings from the already horrific weekly average of two deaths a week to five deaths a week. And the number of calls to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline run by Refuge is also up a staggering 49%. Now, this legislation has been massively delayed, initially introduced with cross-party support by Theresa May's government. Blimey, who thought we'd miss teabag, eh? In July last year, it was dropped when Johnson prorogued Parliament, thus undoing all and any progress. 
But MPs haven't stopped fighting for it to be reintroduced. And today I am tipping my hat, not for the first time, to my MP, Labour's Harriet Harman, and also to Conservative MP Mark Garnier, who have teamed up to put forward an amendment to outlaw the courtroom murder defence of rough sex gone wrong. You may recall we chatted to the excellent Fiona McKenzie, co-founder of the We Can't Consent to This campaign and self-proclaimed random angry woman (laughs) about the so-called Fifty Shades defence a while ago. That refers to when men who kill women escape justice by alleging that the victim had consented to sex games. We Can't Consent to This has calculated that more than 20 women a year are injured or killed when it is claimed that sex games have gone wrong. Harriet Harman urged MPs to stop this injustice of the sex game defence, as it means that men are literally getting away with murder. This is a double injustice, she said. Not only does he kill her, but he drags her name through the mud. It causes indescribable trauma for the bereaved family, who see the man who killed her describe luridly what he alleges are her sexual proclivities. She, of course, is not there to speak for herself. He kills her and then he defines her. The government has uh, promised to look into it, which somewhat oddly (laughs) I'm not finding comforting right now. I love the has. She's great. She's great. Well, would anyone like a little goosey gander at some good news? I am, and I'm excited with what you've done there. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Well, it's all over to York Rail Station now, where the British Transport Police have come up with the least imaginative name for a goose since Mother Goose. That's right. It's Mother Goose, but that's not the story. Warming the cockles of the four people currently using the station, <laughs> she's also warming something else. Because after a short disappearance last week, MG has returned with four eggs, which she's currently sitting on in a flower bed. She came in two weeks ago, had a bit of a look around, and she's made herself very much at home in the flower bed, said London North Eastern Railway's Director of Communications, Kate McFarren. And if you're interested and you don't think geese are, I don't know, sort of cunts, you they can follow. Pricks. They are, aren't they? You can follow her progress by searching the hashtag, hashtag goosecam on social media. <laughs> when oh, my... I hope that is the only thing that comes up as hashtag goosecam. It just oh, sounds God. like he's <laughs> waiting for something dodgy to do with a scrotum. When my nephew was little, he used to call geese the ducks that bite your trousers. I love that. <laughs> Solid point. <laughs> Solid point he's made there. Oh, that is my favourite description of geese. Keeping on the animal tip, it looks like the beast of Bodmin has got a bit of competition as Kent coppers were called out amid fears a big cat was on the loose. Armed police turned up on the hill near 85-year-old Juliet Simpson's house in the village of Underriver, so Simpson dutifully introduced them to her tiger, made of chicken wire and resin, which has been in situ for 20 years. Simpson, a sculptor, made the tiger planning to sell it but changed her mind and just left it in the local forest. When I put him in the wood, he sort of owned it and soon became a landmark, she said, adding, the police liked the model and said they thought it was very lifelike. (laughs) (sighs) I, too, have some good news, and that is that commercial whaling may be over for good in Iceland, one of just three countries left in the world continuing the practice. Gunnar Bergman Johnson, that's a surprisingly easy Icelandic name to pronounce, (laughs) managing director of whaling company UP Utgard, said last week, and I quote, I'm never going to hunt whales again. I'm stopping for good. On the same day, Christian Lofsen, again, quite an easy Icelandic name to pronounce, CEO of Oh, now I'm going to fall down, aren't I? Oh, (laughs) you you pissed on your own parade there. (laughs) Havala 
said his ships would also not be setting out to sea this summer, blaming social distancing restrictions. However, that firm's ships also stayed in port last year, which suggests matters are a wee bit more complicated than that. Indeed, a slowly changing public opinion, a decline in demand from the world's biggest market for whale meat, Japan, and an increase in demand for whale watching may mean that commercial whaling is done forever in Iceland, which, and far be it from me to celebrate the decline of an industry, I'm going to say is very good news indeed. I'm never going to hunt whales again. No, me, me neither. I've, I've decided to stop clubbing seals, to be honest with you. Yeah. Just, it, well, it's, really, it's really brought it home in lockdown how absolutely appalling that behaviour was in the first place. More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where biology is a matter of life and death. This week, the mainstream media finally caught up with Caroline Criado Perez and a whole load of women frontline workers in recognising that PPE, when it can be accessed, of course, is made to be unisex. And the universal in that they're unisex is, of course, male. Because male tends to be the default setting for bodies, with female bodies mostly viewed as variations on a male pattern, despite that being provably dangerous horseshit. PPE, and we're talking gloves, masks, gowns, face shields, etc., is essential for protecting frontline workers exposed to COVID-19. And the Department of Health says the kit it's occasionally providing is designed to protect, quote, both genders. The truth is, this PPE, like most PPE, has been designed around the unisex male body. Small is small for men. And if PPE is too big, it can be less effective in providing a complete barrier to the virus, which makes it pretty much pointless. Even where women are able to get a good enough fit on a mask, it has to be pulled so tight that they are developing pressure sores. The Royal College of Nursing has described one-size-fits-all personal protective equipment as problematic and restrictive when it has to be worn for up to 12 hours during shifts. Nurses can find it very difficult to treat patients if this equipment is so uncomfortable it makes them hot and unwell, said Rose Gallagher, professional lead for infection prevention and control. So let's put all of this into perspective with some stats. 77% of workers who are in the most high-risk jobs in terms of exposure to COVID-19 are female. 77% of NH staff are female. 89% of nurses are female. 84% of care workers are female. (laughs) It's very clearly an important issue, not just to do with infection, but with transmission. Caroline Criado Perez spoke to new scientists about this in the podcast a couple of weeks ago, which led to men on Twitter clamouring to congratulate her on her reasoned, smart and painstakingly researched findings. Except, of course, it did not. Instead, it led to a lot of men screaming that she was a silly woman slash morally indefensible feminist witch. Because, um, well, because, uh, well, because they didn't agree with her and did not have anything to back them up whatsoever. In fairness, she is a bird. So what does she know? Loads. She she knows loads. And if you haven't already, you should read her excellent book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Now, on a, an unrelated but kind of related note, this has answered a question for me in that I made a face mask over hmm. the weekend from a pattern that came from the CDC. And it's too big for me. Ah, well, that's because you've got a silly small face. Oh, sorry, no, you've got a female face. Yeah. 
Hello, Hannah here. Now, as you know, this is usually the point in the podcast where I interrupt to say something about you being able to give us some money via the magic of Patreon. But I know everyone's having to tighten their belts financially and also that there are probably some very worthy charities that you are supporting with your time and money. And so how can you continue to help us? Well, you can listen to us. If you're furloughed and you're at home or if you're taking your regular hour walk, why not have a route around through our back catalogue to see if there's anything you haven't listened to? Because listens equals money for us. Equally, you could spend this time spreading the news about Standard Issue. I know a lot of you already do this, but if you see anyone on Twitter asking for suggestions of what they could listen to in this time, just get in there and say Standard Issue. Thank you all for your help and support at this time. And that includes everyone who already supports us on Patreon. Hello, I am joined by Sarah Halls, CEO of Winter Comfort in Cambridge. Hello, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Hannah. Maybe we could start with telling people who don't live in Cambridge what Winter Comfort is. Winter Comfort is the only day centre in Cambridge that supports people who are either homeless or vulnerably housed. So vulnerably housed is a term that would refer to somebody who is perhaps living in in sheltered accommodation, temporary accommodation, supported accommodation by the various housing associations or the council, or in fact, somebody that jimmies, which is the shelter. We are open seven days a week throughout the year. For those who are rough sleeping, we provide free cooked breakfast every day, showers, the opportunity to have any laundry done. We have a clothing store. We also have a number of different agencies who come to Overstream House, which is where we're based. And they range from anything to do with health and well-being. We have foot care clinics. We have a nurse who comes, things like hairdressing, anything to help the health and well-being of rough sleepers and other service users. The street outreach team come into Overstream House. They're the people who are responsible for identifying people who are rough sleeping, helping them into accommodation through a council. We also have opportunities for learning and development, and those range from accredited and non-accredited training opportunities. Our training is around cleaning and or food hygiene, because most people, if they're going to be getting back into the workplace. Those are entry-level jobs that people can do. And so to support that, we have two social enterprises. One is a catering business called Food for Food that provides buffets for all sorts of corporate events or training or whatever. And the other is Overstream Clean, which is a cleaning business. And we clean predominantly for office spaces or restaurants or commercial cleaning. We also have lots of projects where we work with people to help them with their job skills. So we might have a job skills workshop three times a week to help them to get back into employment. So we have a wide range of ways in which we support people. Our aim is to provide basic welfare for those who need it, but then also to help and assist people to make changes in their lives, to move out of uh, being homeless, to get their lives back into some sort of stability. There's a lot going on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds like there's a lot going on, but it also sounds like a lot of that is not going to be able to be going on at the moment. Is that right? That's correct, yes. In fact, from when we closed the centre, 
on the 25th of March, we have not been able to carry out any work with our social enterprises and our learning and development work and training and skills, that has all ceased. So we've had to look at how we have to adapt along with everybody else. The day that we closed, the key issue was to provide those who normally come to Overstream House with immediate support with food and look at how we could work with the street outreach team to get people into accommodation. So since then, our key focus has been providing people with welfare support. So we are making hot food that is being delivered to, there are currently 103 people who we have helped to verify with street outreach team as rough sleepers and the council has placed 103 people into temporary accommodation. There are a further number of people who currently are into double figures who are known to be rough sleeping but they are still need to be placed into, into temporary accommodation. So working with the street outreach team and with the council and other agencies. We're also working with the Salvation Army to provide food. Overstream House is still cooking seven days a week that is then delivered by volunteers to the various locations where people are in temporary accommodation. And we're also providing packs of dry foods so that people don't just have the one meal They've got other, what we call snack packs, basically. And we're also being asked to provide toiletries. So people still need to have shampoo and soap and toothpaste and so on and so forth to keep clean. We're still doing laundry. A lot of people use our address as their postal address. We're still providing that service. Most of our project workers are still working, albeit from home, and they are providing a service of support, well-being support and advice on the phone. So we're making upwards of 60 phone calls a day to people to find out how they are, to see if they if they need anything, what support we can give them. So we still are very much giving a lot of welfare support, albeit in a in a very different way from how we've been been used to delivering yeah. it. Those people who were rough sleeping who have been put into temporary accommodation. Have they been put in together? They're in about four different locations. Some people are in halls at King's in the college. Some people are in the Victoria Project, which is part of a housing association, so they've got accommodation for them there. And others are in bed and breakfasts or travel lodges. It's quite varied. And so whilst we are doing all of the food preparation for the weekends at Winter Comfort and all of the dry foods and other toiletries, etc. during the week, there are volunteers that are picking the food up from where we are and they then deliver it at allocated times so that people can then collect the food so that people can maintain social distancing. Some of those volunteers are members of local churches and others are some members of the council who have their roles have been repurposed. Because although you could argue that the homeless community has essentially been socially distanced from the rest of the country, they haven't been socially distanced from each other, have they? Sense of community is important with 
it is, it is very important and that is is one of the things that people are really the feedback that we're getting because people are having to be you know isolating in their rooms it's so much anxiety it's a bit of a double-edged sword because whilst a lot of people are very grateful that they're housed and that they've got somewhere to live, albeit temporarily, then they are worried about what's going to happen in the longer term. And they're also very anxious because a lot of people have mental health issues and suffer with anxiety anyway. So for them to be on their own is quite challenging. So that was why it was really important for us to make sure that everybody gets a regular check, even if it's just ringing up to say, how are things? So that people are feeling that they've got somebody they can relate to and that they they feel part of of the community. So there are still people rough sleeping in Cambridge? Yes, Yes, there are, yes. Is that representative, do you know, of the country as a whole? What I do know is that there are some people who have been verified as rough sleeping and who've been offered temporary accommodation and have chosen not to take it. It's a very small minority I would imagine that because there are some some rough sleepers who don't want to engage with with services, that is a known fact. There are a lot of people who just don't want to engage. And so the numbers of people have have been quite staggering, actually. We, We collate a lot of data. And in our quarterly report from January to March this year, we had got 91 people who had self-verified as, as, as rough sleepers. And based on some of the intelligence that we gather through our project workers, we felt that that number was correct. And then to find that there are significantly more people, it, you know, it, it is being something that really, I think, one of the biggest learnings from this is that there are a lot of hidden homeless people. Yeah. So from that point of view, we really do need to, to look at our service when we are able to open Overstream House again and how we deliver a service because we think that there are going to be significantly more people who now have been verified that will be wanting and needing our help and support. Sounds like the community response has been good. Is that is that a fair reflection to say that Cambridge yes, has rallied? Um, we have been working in partnership with both the City Council the county council, as well as lots of our other partner organisations. So we've been working very closely with Jimmy's, who uh, are the night shelter, and and lots and lots of other volunteers. It's been a really good team effort. People have pulled together. I think that we've all had to get used to these types of conversations, these types of meetings over Zoom or Teams. Right from the outset, before we actually closed Winter Comfort, we had already developed a COVID-19 emergency plan. So we had already looked at how we would adapt our service or close our service and who we would work with. And we worked in liaison with Jimmy's with that because we are very closely linked. Homeless providers in Cambridge all use a database that's called Inform. It's run and hosted by the council where we can all keep one another up to date on any issues and and so on. So it's been a great communication tool. And the reason we started that, we started it when I first became chief exec, which is about eight and a half years ago. And the, the key thing was so that if a service user came to Winter Comfort, they didn't have to keep repeating their story to 
Jimmy's or to Cyrenians or to the council or that's worked really really well because we've been able to share information on there and, and it's been live that's helped tremendously. If people are listening to this I mean people in Cambridge can help you directly but perhaps yeah. people if they're in Manchester there'll be places that also need help up there. What sort of donation is handy to you right now? What, what are you struggling to get your hands on? A couple of areas really I mean obviously a donation of cash or, or funds is really essential because then we can direct that where we need it. So we have launched an appeal. Then that means that we have got the funds to enable us to buy whatever it is that we actually need. But other things that we need are things like toiletries, any food donation, uh, tinned goods or dry goods that will have to be in date. The, the issue around having people give us stuff, if you like, as a gifts in kind, is that it then makes it quite difficult, you know, just for social isolation, yeah. so that you've got that distance. So that's why we've encouraged more people to donate funds to us. It's better for us to have one big food delivery, rather than lots of people keep arriving with, with donations. Yeah. Normally, we would be very much welcome people to come and visit us and drop off food donations or clothes or, or toiletries, because then it gives us an opportunity for them to see our work firsthand so that they can see how they're helping us and helping others. But whilst we have to keep our staff safe and others who are coming to the centre safe with deliveries, we would encourage people to donate to our appeal. What about if somebody sees somebody on the street that is homeless Mm -hmm. at the moment? Because as you say, some people are still rough sleeping. What sort of help do you think is the best that could be directed? Again, is it money? Money is always a very difficult one to give to somebody directly. There are some arguments that by donating money to somebody, particularly because a lot of homeless people have substance misuse issues, that you possibly are helping to encourage that But then equally, people do need to eat. And so uh, donations, uh, you know, to give somebody a sandwich or something, you know, something to eat. But again, it's very difficult because really, how can you donate to somebody and stay two metres apart? Yeah. You know, that that is that is the key that I want people to, to know that they need to be safe. The best way is to contact an organisation like Winter Comfort, say where that person is. And then we can either communicate with the street outreach team. It's the street outreach teams at the councils. They are the people responsible for actually going face to face with those who are currently rough sleeping. In in other times, I might make a different suggestion. But at the moment, I would say to somebody, if you're concerned that somebody is rough sleeping, contact your local street outreach team through the council and advise them of the location. Or, or another, if there's another organisation like Winter Comfort in your area. These are challenging times where I wouldn't want a member of the public wanting to help somebody to then put themselves at risk yeah. by, by help. And, and also because so many of our people who are rough sleeping, their, their immune systems are compromised. It's more likely that we could, you know, general members of the public could, could pass that on to somebody who's rough sleeping than the other way. Yeah, because, do more harm than good. Uh, Exactly. So it is really important. Those who are newly homeless, we have had people come to us who've been made homeless since this um, outbreak. 
so we the, the the method for that is then that they are referred to the council and then we are made aware of them and then we can help them i have one last question for you when something like this happens been shaken to our foundations a bit haven't we yeah. you think it's the perfect <laughs> opportunity to rebuild the world in a much more ideal way than we've been living up until now so what would your hope be for what this whole experience might teach us about homelessness and how we deal with it as a nation? One of the biggest things that I would hope to happen is a recognition of how many people are living within a month or so of potentially losing their homes and that we have to look at how people are housed It's clear that we all know that there is insufficient social housing and clearly it is very, very important that we do have more social housing and, and supported housing. But one of the things that we have to remember is that just by providing somebody who is homeless or who has been homeless for a long time with a roof over their head, that isn't the answer to keeping them off the streets. There has to be a more holistic approach. And if there's one thing that I think that really needs to come out of it is that it's far more cost effective to keep someone in a tenancy, to provide them with with a home that either is is through um, a supported housing association or, or, or social housing, but it's really important that you equip them with the life skills to enable them to maintain those tenancies and that people get support. Putting a roof over somebody's head, not going to solve a long-term problem. It's much more important to recognise that there are so many people who have mental health problems, who have substance misuse issues and for whom they, they need to have those skills to enable them to make a change in in their lifestyle that becomes a more permanent change so that they can lead a much more structured life. And the reason I I think that that is is the most important way to support people is because I've seen what has happened at Winter Comfort by us having our social enterprises, Overstream Clean in particular, all of our cleaning operatives are people who have been homeless. And to look at how their lives have been transformed by gaining their self-esteem, maybe initially volunteering, going through our training sessions and our training course, doing work experience, getting a job. And then because we have a specialist housing advisor helping to get them into housing, but keeping that maintained support so that they still have access to our project workers to help them if they've got any debt issues and to have that ongoing training. And as, as they reintegrate back into society, they then start to rebuild their self-worth. And, you know, we have lots of case studies of people who are currently working for us who really have, uh, their lives have been transformed. And it's not because they've had a home, it's because they've had all of that other support yeah. around them to help them move forward. That, for me, is the key issue here. If people want to know more about Winter Comfort and, indeed, to give you some cold, hard cash, where can they find you? We are on www.wintercomfort.org.uk. Thank you so much, Sarah. This has been really illuminating and well done for soldiering on. I've got an amazing team at Winter Comfort. 
Hello, Jen here with another interruption. Not another one! We are all over that social media, innit? If you want to converse with us via the digital world, you can do so. We're on Twitter, at Standard Issue UK, and individually, at Mixter Noonan, at That Dunleavy, and at Inspira Jen. And it should be perfectly obvious which one is which. <laughs> We're Standard Issue Magazine on Facebook, and you can also find us on Instagram, because we are down with the kids, at Standard Issue Podcast. Come and have a look at the pictures we post. Surprisingly, not really that many of cats. I am joined on the phone by Jane Watson, psychotherapist, friend of the show and all-round top woman. Hello, Jane. Hello, Mickey. How are you? I'm all right, but thank you very much for asking because (laughs) I wanted to talk to you about how we cope emotionally with the various aspects of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. In fact, this pandemic There are so many different angles to it, but let's start with lockdown, which is proving an emotional roller coaster for a lot of people. Mm. Why, Jane? What is happening to us? Well, everything we've grown to know, love, enjoy, our freedoms, everything has been taken away from us in a moment. Mm-hmm. I think that takes a bit of adjusting to. I'm not going to use that word that everyone keeps saying, but it's. I am, actually. It's unprecedented. (laughs) All right, Rishi Sunak, here he is. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was a period, I don't know, it it feels like we're well into it now, but you know when it was all starting to sort of kick off? There seemed to be quite a lot of people thinking that it wouldn't be so bad or it wouldn't happen here. You know, a kind of a level of denial, if you will, Mm -hmm. about what was coming. Because it's just never happened to us before. So I think there was a bit of disbelief that, that that would actually become a thing. And then, of course, then we're in lockdown. And all our patterns of small joys, you know, like getting a coffee in the morning, they're all gone. How we work, how we socialise, that's all gone. When I talk about denial, I also I sort of frame it in the stages of grief, if you will. Yeah. You know? Stages can kind of flip about it every which way, but there's a process of sort of having to get to an acceptance of what is happening. So there's denial and then there's this sort of anger and then a pushback, you know, a bargaining. Hopefully, finally, an acceptance, which makes it easier to live in this situation. And I say easier because it's not easy at all. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, it's, it's understandable and fine not to be okay, right? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's really fine not to be okay. This is not a good situation. This is not what anyone wants. In fact, you know, to know that it's okay to not be okay is a really important thing to hold in mind. You hear quite a few people sort of saying they're going to achieve lots. Well, I don't think that's very helpful for a a majority of people Mm -hmm. who are finding it quite hard to get through the day as it is. There is a huge sense of loss and a sense of abandonment. You're going to feel sad, you're going to feel anxiety, you're going to feel fear. You're going to start ruminating about things that maybe you haven't ruminated in a while about. You're going to start thinking about death, probably. There are lots of things that are going to start surging up within you that don't normally happen. That is going to weigh quite heavily on on your energy levels, really. I would certainly advocate it's okay not to be okay. It's that sense of overwhelming paired with Mm. uncertainty. And I don't think our brains deal very well with either of those in a normal situation. No, and uncertainty is is a big problem for us humans. I mean, the truth is that nothing is certain, but I think we kind of uh, mask it quite well with our previous lives. You know, 
there seems to be a degree of control and power we hold, we believe we hold. We have a home, we have a job, we have these friendships, those friendships. Even though actually in reality that nothing's certain, all that can go. And now we've noticed that that has gone, that can go, in the blink of an eye. And, and that's really destabilising. You know, I'm sure you felt that yourself. Yeah, it's interesting that you use that word destabilizing. It's like all my mm. emotions are decided they're going to have a go at some point. So I've had phases mm. where I feel frightened and anxious for, for other people mm. or where I feel just low and knackered by it all. Mm. And then there are times mm. when I, I quite enjoy not having to make or stick to plans. And then mm. I feel guilty about enjoying aspects of this. Yeah, and, and that I would say is normal you're going through that daily weekly it sounds exhausting doesn't it to be going through a range of different emotions and thoughts and feelings i don't know if you felt absolutely exhausted at the start of this i know quite a lot of people do i'm definitely sleeping more well that's because when this started because we didn't know what was happening and we started to get quite anxious quite a lot of us if you are in a state of heightened sort of anxiety and stress that saps your reserve and that will cause you to feel very tired and you'll often feel quite groggy anyway because the sleep is often disturbed because of the heightened anxiety people are having at the moment. And that leads to like some crackers, full-on vivid dreams as well. I've read a lot of people having vivid dreams or nightmares. Oh, yes. And that is probably because of what's happening because of the processes that you're going through mentally. But also, you're probably having more opportunity to sleep. There's probably more chance that you'll wake up within a dream, within REM sleep. So you might find that you remember more. But yes, people are having very strange dreams. I'm having very strange dreams. And it's a way of trying to process what's going on. Your dreams are like a a recycling centre for your, your thoughts and feelings of the day. What it'll do is it'll try and sift through, process what you've been through, what you've been thinking in the day. And obviously, normally, that's not particularly that taxing. Under these circumstances, under stress, then it makes sense that those dreams, nightmares, become more vivid and more strange and more disturbing because of what you're trying to process in a sort of anxious and stressed state. And you mentioned earlier, you mentioned the word grief and the the stages of grief. And of course, for Mm. a lot of people individual grief and loss is been thrown into this mix as well yes and of course we can't grieve as we normally would mm. because if we lose someone at the moment we can't reach out to well we you know we can we can remotely reach out to one another but we can't be there for one another we can't even have normal funerals we can't sit at the bedside of our loved one you know if if they're in hospital with covid so it's hard because it's happening. It's People are still dying. Loved ones are still passing. But the normal way to grieve and say goodbye has been taken away and almost put on hold. Then you can be in a situation on your own, potentially, losing someone very important, but not having the normal support around you. You spoke there about reaching out and virtually reaching out. And I've got to say, mm. well... Some people seem to find comfort in almost constant Zoom calls. I've seen a lot of people, me included, who actually find it so stressful. You know what, Mickey? I'm so glad you phoned me up today rather than (laughs) asking me a Zoom call. I was so glad you didn't say, should we do this on Zoom? (laughs) Um, So the thing 
is. Zoom is hard because when you're physically with someone, you pick up people's cues a lot easier. Mm-hmm. You know, you can sense things. And, and there's a bit of a lag in Zoom. So you're trying very hard to keep the connection, but you're not just focusing on hearing. You know, the interface of the screen feels like a harder thing to surpass in connection sometimes. And of course, you're on show as well, aren't you? Yeah, tiny me in a corner. Fuck off. Tiny you in the corner. You can get rid of that. You do know that, right? No. You can, can get you? rid of that. Yes. I'll show you. I'll tell you. It's, I'll tell you later. All right. But um, <laughs> you can remove yourself. I mean, obviously, I do do it in my work. It's the only way I can work at the moment. Yeah. And it's brilliant for that. But, you know, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's, it is impinged by us not being in the same room together. Yeah. But that's why it feels quite exhausting, doesn't it? It feels like hard work. Those concentration levels are absolutely energy zapping. They are. There are so many endless scenarios from, say, a single woman living alone and working from home to a mum with a young family and a job as a frontline worker. So we can only talk in generalities. Yeah, you can. What would be a sort of general tip you would give to people to look after their emotional health? We were talking about control, weren't we, and the lack of control. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of sustaining this high level of anxiety is still trying to manage external stresses that we have absolutely no power over so if you can to try and release yourself i mean in general terms to accept the unknown and accept that things are generally beyond your power is quite a healthy thing to strive towards and you know try and keep a sort of structure to your day you know don't try and replicate your previous life's day you know but try and get up at a similar time and go to bed at a similar time Mm -hmm. have a break try and do some nice things for yourself try and eat healthily try and limit your drinking all these things that maybe you don't want to do at the moment But that will have the impact of keeping your mental health feeling better, you know, you feeling better in yourself the following day. Try and exercise if you can, even if it's a, a walk outside. If you can't, open a window. Not today, it was raining. You know, well, do it if you want. But, um, you know, like try and get some fresh air. It's self-care, really. It's a sort of self-care basics, really. Yeah. I know that some people will find that very hard to do. You know, I have to acknowledge that. That's the thing. Depending on people's situations, that might be a very hard, hard thing to do. And then we come back to the original point is, this is a very tough time for a lot of people. Yeah, totally. And I guess you just have mm. to do whatever you can do in, in, the, in the smaller scale of things to look after yourself. Yes, and actually, another friend said to me about the Zoom, actually. I was just thinking... And oh, I've just had the worst Zoom group chat with some friends, but one of them is a perfect parent. You know, I'm having a great time with my yeah. kids. Yeah. I'm, I don't know. What do you, I don't know. I'm knitting. <laughs> I've crafted them a new bedroom, that kind of thing. Yes, yes, yeah. Blogged it all, journaled it all, and um, made this friend feel absolutely like they were failing. And, you know, don't talk to those people. <laughs> They are doing what they're doing for whatever reason, probably to make themselves feel a bit better. The outcome for a lot of people is it makes everyone else feel lousy. And I said, you know, most people are just eating Easter eggs for breakfast and screaming into pillows most days. So don't worry about it. But, like, if 
think it's about making you happy, but don't do it. Yeah. If you're feeling dragged down by something, avoid it. You could call this a kind of collective trauma, a massive trauma that, you know, we don't know how people are going to feel after this. So there's a lot of discussion that people are going to need a lot of help after this, uh, you know, mental health wise. But that could trigger people who've already had trauma. It doesn't have to be a similar trauma. It can just be a trauma. Mm -hmm. Then you start to think about the trauma, but because your life isn't being broken up by the normal things you would do in life you end up kind of going on a spiral down into the trauma. Yeah, hey. So I suppose, yeah, so something like meditation or mindfulness, and there are endless apps online, might be a really good idea at this point. Give yourself a bit of headspace. I'm not great at those, but I find that if I exercise when my body's tired, it tires my brain out as well. Well, that's great then. Well, keep doing that. I go for a run, and that kind of seems to, I really notice if I don't, I hate running, by the way. Mm-hmm. I hate it. It wasn't something I was doing before <laughs> this. But I realised that if I, I gave it a go and I was, I'm not great, you know, I'm getting better every day, but I, I feel exhausted in a very nice way. And it kind of makes yeah. me feel a bit more positive. There's just one thing extra I wanted to ask mm. you about. Now there's talk of how lockdown restrictions might start easing. It it struck me that a lot of people are going to feel frightened mm. of what we all used to take for granted, you know, like going to a gig, hanging out with humans we don't live with, or even just going outside for some people. So how do we prepare ourselves to deal with that? Well, I suppose it's about what you're comfortable with. I mean, I think I'd worry if you just felt like you couldn't come back out again. I think you've got to push yourself. I I also think you've got to think about how a lesser lockdown is going to look, and we don't actually know, do we? So I would question whether pubs and restaurants will be open immediately. Things where people congregate, I wonder. I I wonder if it will be more of a slow drip back into the world as we knew it, but changed, of course. So I suppose we've got to follow those cues and do what we're comfortable with. But I was wondering this, will I ever want to shake someone's hand again? Do you know, like... Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because now I feel like it kind of doesn't make sense, does it? You're exactly right, but I can't imagine meeting up with you and not giving you a hug. Well, no, and that's true, but... um, that's true with you, but I mean, maybe with an acquaintance or something, but I don't know. I yeah. I think it's because I heard, was it the doctor, is it Fauci, the, the American doctor said that we shouldn't just shake hands again, and it really stuck with me. So I've thought about that a lot. You know, when we were talking about these spirals, that was my little spiral one day. Should I ever shake someone's hand again? <laughs> but you're right. It's kind yeah. of comforting that someone armed with all of this amazing knowledge also feels a little yeah, bit mad. Of course, because, of course, I am a human as well. And as you've noted, I talk quite differently <laughs> sometimes than I do now. You know, like I, get, I have bad days. Sometimes it, it, it doesn't feel very easy at all. Just because I'm a psychotherapist doesn't stop me from having all these things. But you've given us some really reassuring advice. So thank you so much. And, and Jane, where can people find you if they would like to find you? Okay, so my website's janewatsontherapy.co.uk and I have a Facebook page and it's it's basically Jane Watson Therapy. I'm sure you can find it. Awesome. Thank you so much for chatting to me. It's been really, no really worries. good. It felt like a hug and I appreciate that. 
Yeah, no, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of regazing on my uh, no physical touching. <laughs> I'll give you a massive hug when I see you next time. Hello, I am joined on the phone by comedian and bona fide American Kate McCabe. Hello, Kate. Hello, always a pleasure to be chatting with you, Hannah. How are you? There's a thing going on, I don't know if you've noticed. Lockdown at UK is affecting me in a way that's probably very similar to many of your listeners, I would assume. You think, oh, this is one of those situations where it's almost like you're on a desert island. And, you know, you've got access to Duolingo and books and a keyboard and all these things. And are you engaging with them in a way that's super productive and making you happy inside? No. Hmm. Committing to bettering myself for about 15% of the day. And then the rest of the day is thankfully now, because God bless Channel 5, watching Golden Girls reruns. (laughs) I love my hobbies. But when I've got nothing but my hobbies, yeah. I haven't read a comic book since this whole thing started. I haven't yeah. read a book since this happened. Yeah, a- and you're a reader. I bought loads, loads of books I bought to get me through this. I haven't picked up a single one. I am actually listening to an audiobook, but for some reason I don't classify that as reading. Because I generally am I doing something else when I'm listening to it at the same time. What I'm listening to is Ron Chernow's biography of Ulysses S. Grant, which is a, a, a good segue into where we're going, because even a man who many, many people spent a lot of time running down his reputation, his reputation cannot be as poor as the man you have in charge at the moment. We think we know what's going to happen in November, a major catastrophe notwithstanding, and that is it's going to be Joe Biden v. Donald Trump, which I have to say, personally, seemed like the worst possible outcome from the Democratic primary. Is that something you would agree with? I was Camp Elizabeth Warren. And then before Biden, I probably had like four or five other preferences, if not six, seven or eight. I think it's left people like me in a sort of awkward position because the man is currently being accused of sexual assault. And as a woman, it would just be really nice for one year for there to be someone who's running who's not embroiled in a sexual assault controversy. Because, you know, I voted for Hillary. I was very proud to vote for Hillary that year. But unfortunately, she had the stink of Bill's actions Mm. all over her campaign. That's another conversation. Is that fair? Yes, that is another conversation. Here's the thing. You think that one party is white hats and one party is black hats, and that's not the way it is. There's rat bags on both sides of the spectrum. Absolutely. Now, from where I'm sitting looking at this, I think the Democratic Party has got a lot of the same problems that the Labour Party has. For example, in the way that you said that you would vote for Joe Biden, I mean, I did vote for Jeremy Corbyn, much as I didn't think he was the right man for the job. I wasn't going to vote for the other side. I feel like internal differences in the left means that they are failing to capitalise on what should be a relatively easy goal. Is it fair to compare Labour and the Democrats like that? Sure. I think from the very start of what you might call the tip of the iceberg is sort of choosing your front-running candidate. Labour's had its problems with that. We've had that problem with the Democrats. I don't think the Democrats, as a populist, have done the best in finding the candidate who would be the best to beat Trump. Because what they've done is they've selected a candidate that in many ways is comparable to Trump, an older white man 
of privilege. You know, he is a wealthy man. Despite the fact that it might be undeserved, there is family scandal there because of Biden's son being sort of spied on. There's the scandal of these kind of sexual assault things. He also, like Trump, is not a great speaker, is a bit daughtery. His strength is also similar to what Trump's strength is and that he has the ability to reach out to the common man. So they've chosen someone who in many ways is the Democratic parallel to the Republican candidate. And I don't know if that's the best strategy at this point. I would really love to have someone that says like, hey, here's the situation for the last four years, all the things that have gone wrong. Here's something that's completely different to that. And Elizabeth Warren, she's white and wealthy. But, you know, other than that, I think she differs from Trump in every single way. She is intelligent, understands government, she is just qualified, yeah. I think is the word I'm uh, What for. an outrageous suggestion. Warren fell victim to something that, again, is raging through the left generally. It can't agree with itself. Just because people are economically liberal doesn't necessarily mean that they are socially liberal. And she was very, very forcefully socially liberal, which a a number of people within the Democrat Party weren't as far socially liberal as she was. I think it scared them. In addition to her sort of maybe scaring uh, the socially conservative Democrats, you also would have her scaring the Republicans who might be kind of socially a little more liberal, but they see some of her policies and they're like, oh, she is a she's a socialist if not a communist uh, because those things are the same and would be scared off of those policies but i think as a party you need to present something that is not already on offer so here we have what trump is offering he is offering corruption incompetency hypocrisy of what rights he claims to sort of stand for you know he really tries to appeal to that libertarianism streak in america He was sort of speaking out of uh, both sides of his mouth recently when he was getting the government to devise these social distancing policies and then states that were trying to enforce them. He was liberate Pennsylvania, liberate Michigan. You know, these are just governors who are trying to actually instate the policies that your team have suggested would be best practice. Yeah, it's madness, isn't it? He is hypocritical in what he says he stands for. He appeals to that libertarian base and tries to get business owners and the independent streak of Americans up and, and, you know, ready for blood. But in the meantime, you know, he's using, which I I don't think is a bad idea, the uh, Defense Production Act, which was started around, you know, World War II, so that the executive powers of the government could ask American corporations to make things that will be beneficial for the effort, the war effort, the effort against the pandemic, whatever it is. So I think it's smart to enact that. But what people don't necessarily know is that he enacted that policy months ago to try to get companies to make magnets to compete with Chinese imports. So If he is using those powers to sway American corporations to make things that are a priority for the government first, is he really that sort of like libertarian type president? That is, if anything, a socialist policy. Not even socialist, a communist policy. Talking about socialism, Mm -hmm. we've said it a lot. So let's talk about Bernie Sanders. I'll be honest with you, I'm not a huge fan of Sanders, largely because I I think if you judge a person by who supports them, then he comes out quite badly. Yeah. (laughs) But nonetheless, I would have picked him over Biden. Yeah, only because, and again, hearkening back to 
five minutes ago in this conversation, he represents something that is a stark contrast to Trump. I could find a couple similarities, but I think on the whole, he represents a completely different flavor. We are talking about people who are white and in their 70s. Now, not to diminish... And wealthy. Not to diminish people who are white and in their 70s. <laughs> Most of my family are, to be honest, but... My mom's awesome. <laughs> it's difficult to believe that this is a country that had, very, very recently, had young. I mean, Obama was young in, mm -hmm. in comparison. I mean, he's still older than me. Clinton, when his 50s, I think? Carter was yeah, yeah for, for a president, youngish, like, you know, him having a heart attack because of age related reasons, yeah. maybe diet related reasons, wasn't part of the conversation when he was. Elected. No, I mean, Carter, who is in his 90s now, but it was 40 years ago, he was in the White House. So he must have been in his 50s as well. It's so strange yeah. that American politics seems to be quite so old. Yeah, I mean, it, what do they say that that horrible, but true cliche, one step forward, two steps back. We come together because opposites attract. Yeah. <laughs> We've got Trump now, um, you know, in his 70s, absolutely insane, in bed eating hamburgers <laughs> at, you know, eight o'clock at night. Oh God, it's terrifying, yeah. isn't it? Hillary Clinton has come out and endorsed Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. Barack Obama has endorsed Joe Biden. Kate McCabe has endorsed Joe Biden because mostly because you have no other choice. Do you think this highlights the problems with two-party politics? That's a great question because I do have feelings about it. And I, I think my feelings are backed up by what happens over here. The two-party system is not the plague or the curse that people think it is. Because essentially, you have a left wing and you have a right wing. How right wing the representative is depends on the in internal machinations of what the party is like at that time. Same on the left. Pendulum swings a little bit each time. But if you have an un even amount of leftist parties or an uneven amount of right-wing parties, the way that that vote gets broken up against that number of parties on that side of the spectrum can impact which way the country as a whole swings. The Liberal Democrats, the Green Party, they will only ever be a party of coalition. That kind of happens in American politics. Like if you see someone who takes a seat in like a local level or even even if it's like a federal level branch like the Senate or a, a congressperson, they normally have to sort of caucus with one of the big parties. Yeah. I think the one thing that's going to possibly make the Joe Biden ticket more palatable, I don't think people are going to rush to Trump but I do think that the, the difficulty is that people might not vote at all. What's going to make him more palatable is who he chooses to as his running mate. I think they would love somebody like Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris to be his running mate because it would it would be a salve to those Democrats that are disappointed. You even have people suggesting at this point because of the Tara um, Reid allegations that he stepped down because he is at this point what we call the presumptive nominee. It's not been officially announced and it wouldn't be until the Democratic Convention. Um, that can't be happening though, convention. can it, surely? I wouldn't think so. And if, if something does happen, it's going to be very remote or it's going to be in a, in, a, in a way that's very different. But back to your original point, the only thing that's making me feel better about ticking a box for Biden is the fact that I know that I want the people that he staffs in his cabinet to be leading the country and not who Trump puts in his cabinet, yeah. who are essentially Trump's family members and cronies. So if you look at Biden and you look at his connections, 
I would much rather Biden's Ocean's Eleven yeah, <laughs> than I would absolutely. Trump's Ocean's Eleven. But it would be easy to pick a person of colour or a woman or one of the LGBT community because they were actually in the Democratic primary with them and showed themselves to be very good candidates. Kamala Harris. I liked Buttigieg. I thought he had a lot of interesting things to say. And a lot of that was to do with his age because it was so clear that just being 40 put him way better touch with issues such as gun control. He was so good on gun control because he'd grown up in the era of school shootings. School shootings. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I really agree with that. I think it will be important to select a vice president and running mate who is able to win people over despite Biden's shortcomings. I think someone who is able to really stump for their president, their president to be their, you know, incumbent. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know that that Mayor Pete would be able to convince some people that are naysayers. I think for all the reasons you said I agree that he would be a good candidate, but would he be the one that could sort of get back the feminists that are really annoyed at this? I don't know. I think somebody said it on Twitter and I mean this might seem glib, but for this one, I'm kind of like, who do black women want? Yeah. Let's just have who black women want. Well, they are, I mean, to explain to listeners, they are absolutely the backbone of the Democratic Party. And the only segment of the population that did not, by at least a slim margin, vote for Trump over Mm. uh, Clinton. Okay, so final question, Kate, and I know this is virtually impossible because... We don't know what's going to happen in 25 minutes, let alone what's going to happen in November. Can Biden beat Trump? Yes. And it depends on how he capitalizes on Trump's mistakes. There's a lot of talk right now in the media and amongst the Democratic populace asking where he is and and why is he not more visible during all these sinking ship moments that Trump is having right now in his leadership through the coronavirus. And the reason for that, I believe, is because they are being sensitive to the fact that for a challenger to be capitalizing it in a way that's very vocal almost appears gauche and unhelpful and opportunistic. And despite the fact that Americans love grabbing opportunities, we don't like people who look opportunistic. So... I think the strategy right now is for him to be lurking in that sort of Uncle Joe kind Mm. of way in the background, releasing direct and positive, coherent briefings on his own, but not necessarily coming up with like fiery challenges or rebuttals to what Trump is doing. Because when all is said and done, they want it to look like he was a steady ship throughout this and wasn't basically swinging punches at a president that's already burying himself. From a historical perspective, when... FDR was elected and America was fucked. Obviously, you have that system. I'm I'm explaining it for the people, not for explaining it for you. But (laughs) obviously, America has that system whereby you are president-elect, but not the actual president. Yes. And obviously, Hoover was really struggling. The, The crash, the depression, what was going on in the Dust Bowl. I mean, they were fucked. And when FDR was elected, but not in power, he asked FDR to come on board and start working with him. And FDR said no. That's interesting. Yeah, because he said that anything that he did that was good, credit would have gone to Hoover. And anything that Hoover did that was shit, 
I mean, obviously, FDR didn't say it like this. Anything that Hoover had done that was shit, the stink would have carried into the start of his presidency. So he said mm. he wanted to leave a line, which I suppose means he gets he got to come in and go, da, 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 I'm going to save you, which, to be fair, he yeah. did. <laughs> Hoover desperately trying to open a pickle jar. Yeah. <laughs> and then FDR is like... So there could be an element of that, I think. Why throw Trump a lifeline? Whether or not that's for the best for the country is another matter. But from a political standpoint and from an electoral standpoint, well, it's not a bad idea to, to, to put like a Chinese wall between the Democrats and what the Republicans are doing. A lot of America who maybe didn't understand what best for the country means is starting to see that now. Yeah. Because something like this, people think it's impossible. Trump has all these terrible policies that impact people that they don't feel a connection to, whether they're immigrants or gay people or uh, sufferers of domestic abuse. So Trump has these policies with a bear with their cubs in a cave, all these things that are sort of suffering under Trump's policies. Most Americans can probably separate themselves from and be like, I don't feel that. But what's best for the country, this coronavirus, this is where you feel this because everyone is vulnerable. And so the policies that impact the populace that he is messing up on, everyone is feeling them yeah. right now. Kate, this has been fascinating as ever. Thank you for joining us. Stay safe up in Manchester. The sooner this is all over, the happier I'll be for everyone. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we scream, you can't handle the truth at the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sport. And that was a courtroom reference, by the way, not a sporting one, because I've made a rod for my own back with these and I really need my maternity leave now so I can think of some more. The big story of the week is over in the US where Judge Gary, what is your actual problem? Klausner has frankly stunned the sporting world by rejecting the women's national soccer team's claim that they are underpaid compared to the men's team. Just want to take a minute here to establish a few facts which I think are relevant to this case. The women's team have won four World Cups and four Olympic gold medals. The men's team last made it as far as the round of 16 at the 1948 Olympic Games. And they came third, that's the best ever result, in the 1930 World Cup. They didn't qualify for the last World Cup in 2018. So, as many of you know, the women's national team are now seeking $66 million in damages from the US Soccer Federation under the Equal Pay Act. But Klausner said, nah, the women's team has been paid more on both a cumulative and an average per game basis than the men's team over the class period. Now, in the period in question, the women's team played 111 games, earning a total of $24.5 million, compared to the men's 87 games for $18.5 million. If you do the math, as they say in the US of A, that's not a lot more made by the women, despite being a vastly superior team. It's quite hard to compare this to other countries because there are a lot of factors at play. For example, the domestic leagues. In the men's domestic league, I mean, the, you can't even compare the pay. I think Raheem Sterling, who is thought to be England's sort of highest earning player, gets paid, we think, about £300,000 a week. Whereas the highest earning women's player, Ada Herdeberg, gets paid about £343,000 a year. It's not to be sniffed at, but it's 
pretty different figure. And the idea behind that is because the men's game is more marketable and so it brings in a lot more money, which is sort of a fair point. But that's not applied on an equal footing here because if you look at the USA, the women's team bring in a lot more money than the men's team. It's a much more marketable sport because they are much, much better at football than the men's team. So, as People's Princess Megan Rapino pointed out, under the men's contract terms, they would have made about three times as much. Klausner did, however, a small silver lining here, allow the players to continue their case for unfair treatment regarding travel, housing and medical support, and the trial for that is set to start on June the 16th. Nonetheless, Rapino said the players would appeal the decision and vowed on Twitter to never stop fighting for equality in uh, caps. And then she retweeted Joe Biden, saying that if he were president, US soccer wouldn't get any funding unless the women's team got paid the same. Anyway, I don't know how they can continue to play for an organisation which has so publicly disrespected them, to be honest. I, I really don't. It's it's baffling. Over to Motorsport briefly, where a new series, Extreme E, what a name, the sister series to Formula E, featuring off-road electric cars, nope, I don't know either, has announced that every race must feature at least one female driver when it launches next year. It's a move apparently inspired by mixed doubles in tennis. I don't really understand how that can be cited as inspiration other than just like the women involved. But yeah, there you go. Anyway, Jamie Chadwick, who you heard just the other week on this very podcast, is one of the drivers signed up for the series. Founder of the series, Alejandro Agag, said of the decision, it's the right thing. Motorsport doesn't reflect society. Hear, hear. Meanwhile, as we wang on ad infinitum about what will happen to the Premier League, Surrey Women's Cricket Director Ebony Rainford-Brent, herself a former England player, has been chatting about how cricket might get back up and running again. Cricket, she said, is a socially distanced sport. She's not wrong, they do stand quite far apart. But to host men's matches would require far more people than women's matches, which she reckoned would only require about 30 or so people, compared to hundreds for the men's games. So why not give women centre stage for a bit, she argued. It's an interesting point. Right, that's all from me this week. I will be back soon with more women's sport. And in the meantime, if you're not an angry cyclist and you would like to tweet me, please do. I am at InspireAgen. Thank you. Dunleavy does disaster. Dunleavy, what disaster got us into a shark-infested spin this week? Oh dear God. This week, <laughs> we watched 2013's made-for-TV, oh there's a surprise, Sharknado, which caused an absolute fucking storm on Twitter when it first came out. Which is actually the same year I joined Twitter, so to me it seems like the perfect introduction of what Twitter was was that everyone was going completely batshit about this film, Sharknado, which appeared on the Sci-Fi channel. And stars, well, I mean... Bit of a 90s fest. People that should know better, maybe, (laughs) or people whose careers have fallen on hard times. I'd say Uh the latter. Tara Reid. I suppose the most famous person in this is John Hurd. I know, right? Emmy nominated. Emmy nominated John Hurd. (laughs) Vin Marquezian. I mean, what the fuck? How has this happened? From the Sopranos to Sharknado. <laughs> Funnily enough, the poster for Sharknado just said enough said on it. And I feel like that's kind of... <laughs> Should we just end there? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, it's been lovely. Thanks for all joining us. I watched this in Dunleavy Film Club with my 
nephew and my brother and it was the absolute perfect film to choose for this partly because my nephew gave it 11 he's a 13 year old boy and that's entirely who this film is for there's no two ways about it and also it's a film for people who enjoy just searching random shit on the internet now and sending them to their aunt going i found another fact i found another fact (laughs) which is what's happened since we watched this but also because it it raised a memory like that my brother and I got to share with my nephew, which was what we call the bee with the orange tail. Um, so, you know, jumping forward, <laughs> but you know when uh, the shark landed on the roof of the car and they were all driving along and screaming and yeah. the shark was on the roof of the car. I, t- I put into our WhatsApp group to my brother, I sent the message, uh, this is like the bee with the orange tail. And my nephew was like, I need to know what that is. My brother's like considerably younger than me so we were driving somewhere once my dad was driving my mum's in the front I'm 18 I'm in the back my brother's eight he's also in the back sitting next to us my dad always drove at 100 miles an hour in the fast lane and he always had the window open because he was smoking (laughs) and a thing flew in the window and flew into the back seat of the car and periodically when I'm bored I google a description of it to see if I can find out what this thing was but I never can and so we just call it the bee with an orange tail because it looked like a bee, but it had this orange thing that came out the back of it like a scorpion does, right? Oh, my God. And it was, it was really fucking angry. This thing. <laughs> and it was flying around in the back of the car. And we were like, ah, losing our shit because this thing was flying at us. And my mum was going, your father's trying to drive at 100 miles an hour. And I picked up. I picked up the only thing I could find, which was on the back parcel shelf, which was a book of maps, because, dear reader or dear listener, it was the old days. And I was trying to swat it out. So I've got my brother to open the window and I'm trying to swat this thing out. And I hit it and the wind caught the maps and it started to individually suck pages out of the window. (laughs) And they were landing on the windscreens of cars behind us. (laughs) (laughs) And my dad nearly had a fucking anger stroke. He was so angry with us that this was going on in the back of the car. And then it flew out and nobody, my dad was like, it was a bee. And we were like, it was more than a bee. It had an attachment. It had a thing on the back. You sure it wasn't a fag butt? (laughs) Or his tail was like the lit bit of a fag. As we talk... Hashtag murder hornets is trending on Twitter. <laughs> really? And there's a horrifically large species of Asian yeah. hornet strong enough to penetrate a beekeeper suit that wow. have turned up in America, which I'd kind of written down because it made me think that Sharknado might actually happen in 2020 because <laughs> why the fuck not? Um, but now I think maybe I've answered a question from your childhood, Hannah, and it was a murder hornet. Well, see, these the hornets are on their way here, by the way. But they're not really murder hornets. They can kill people, but so can bees and wasps, which is not what the headline tells you. It's basically it can make you go into anaphylactic shock. Oh, I think the murder isn't about people. It's the fact that they kill and decapitate bees, Jen. Oh, OK. Oh, yeah. how will I get plums in my garden if the bees are out of action? <laughs> and we're about to waste our time talking about Sharknado. The world's a funny place, isn't it? Somebody told me that I'm supposed to go to my at my fruit tree and I'm supposed to touch it all, all the flowers with a with a cotton bud. Who's got time? I have. <laughs> <laughs> so the plot, and I'm going to keep that. I'm going to keep that narrow is that a tornado has picked up a load of sharks and basically dumps them in a storm 
over Los Angeles. A guy that runs a bar, his best friend, one of his members of staff and his biggest drinker, who is played by John Hurd, decide to go and try and save his family and take them to high ground. That's the basic plot of it. You forgot to mention that the main character is called Finn, Hannah. Yeah, what a good joke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The only possible way to talk about this film is, is, is how ridiculously cheap it is. It is so no. cheap that that <laughs> it's not just the effects that are bad. I mean, I could talk about the effects for ages because they're appalling. And the budget and the quality of acting. But, and most of it makes no sense. But there are bits in this where they stop to a halt in a car really dramatically. And then they have to cut to a bit where someone stops a car. And actually what you see is what looks like someone parking in a really sedentary stop footage <laughs> way. Every time they cut to what the flooded areas, it looks like they've just put sharks into Hurricane Katrina footage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks I absolutely appalling. <laughs> they are never, ever... Like, you'll get bits where people are running together and they, they obviously don't have the same location for long. It kind of feels like it's been done gonzo style because you'll have two people running towards each other and they'll be shot. And you can clearly see it's not the same street. It's got different landmarks on it. And then they meet together and it's a third street. But because obviously they have to shoot well where they can, there is no continuity. So for one shot, it's raining. And then two seconds later, it's not raining and everyone yeah. has dry hair. And then, uh, then they're in a traffic jam and then they go to outside and there's no traffic. There's a glorious bit where they have to load a load of children into the back of an ambulance. And he says be safe now and I'm like it's not going to be safe there's like 27 of them in the back of one ambulance because that was obviously all they could afford to rent was one ambulance I suppose if you find it funny and amusing that there are big flaws in that then I suppose that was quite funny but there's no logic to it whatsoever there's a brilliant bit where they're in a house they get to the house to go and collect the wife and the kids and she's got a new boyfriend although has she because that floppy haired fuck Right? It wasn't even clear whose boyfriend he was, really. He was very... like. Was it the daughter? Was it the mother? I think it was Tara Reid. Yeah. Yeah. He suffered instant karma, which happens a lot in this film. The minute <laughs> someone doubts a, a, a shark, it will come and eat them in a way that sharks don't eat people. But that's not the biggest <laughs> problem with this by any stretch of the imagination. They're in a house that's full of water, right? And their plan is to get outside into a car and there is no water outside but the house is full of water and they're on the same level it makes no logical sense whatsoever they open the front door and water goes out into the street it should be the other way around (laughs) and then the house explodes because it's got too much water in it which as we all know is a thing why are the sharks so hungry like seriously they've just been picked up from their natural habitat thrown into the air and then, I mean, I don't think food is going to be the first thing on their mind. Yet they come See, down bitey as Bad sharks. Bad sharks, yeah. TM. Bastard sharks <laughs> that can breathe outside of water. I mean, my nephew really summed this film up when he said this is like the 1960s Batman. And I, I feel like that's kind of the production values and everything that have gone with it. Like, there's bits that make no sense. They steal a car that... Is that James Bond's car? They steal a car that has a magic turbo button in it. Oh, the... Yeah. It looked like they hired a car. And so Gary and I were trying to work out, did they have, or did they all have their driving licences? And because you have to, there's a lot of paperwork. I've hired a car. (laughs) It takes ages. (laughs) To me, that was the most unrealistic part of the film. (laughs) How quickly they hired a car. (laughs) 
I can't work out whether it seriously thought it was Jaws or it jokingly thought it was Jaws, but it it had, number one, it had its own version of a USS Indianapolis story. And also it had a, we're going to need a bigger... Chopper. Chopper joke as well. Wasn't the band that played the theme tune called Quint as well? And it was easily two or three actual lines that were almost the same as Jaws. I think yeah. they were nods to Jaws yeah. in a kind of respect for Jaws way, but utterly disrespectful. But also, <laughs> I thought they were like an apology. <laughs> yeah. Like, sorry, yeah, we're not Jaws. <laughs> the other thing that they've taken from Jaws is there's a scene in Jaws where the kids are playing in an arcade. They're playing an arcade game where they're having to shoot the shark. And it is that shark that they've used for all sharks in <laughs> Sharknado. Seriously, I've got pairs of trousers that look more like sharks. <laughs> than the sharks in this film. Can we talk about the fact that it was a bit of a like weird 90s fest, the cast? Mm. The cast, so two of the main characters were main characters in Baywatch and Beverly Hills 90210. Who was in Baywatch? So the Australian man, Baz, played Logan oh. someone or other. His name in real life is Jason Simmons. He's got two A's in Jason. <laughs> so you refuse to say Jason. <laughs> Jason. <laughs> well, I just remember it from being a kid. I remember from watching Baywatch as a kid and being like, uh, Jason, uh, your name's spelt wrong. And so when I was like looking up the cast yesterday, I was like, why do I know the name Jason? <laughs> that's why. But you see, that's why he changed it, because he's memorable now. You wouldn't have remembered it had you not had the double A. No, I would never have occurred to me. And true. um and your man Finn. Iron, not Ian. Iron. Iron. Z- yeah, Zeering. Yeah. Who was the least attractive one in Beverly Hills nine oh two one oh? Steve. But I think the richest one. Yes, you're right, he yeah. was the richest one. But I didn't I once, know any of this. I once had a dream about Jason Priestley fairly recently. I had a dream that a friend of mine had um <laughs> sent me uh, a ham that was made in the in the image of Jason Priestley by Jason Priestley and to prove that it was the case and because you'd obviously go well did Jason Priestley really make this there was a video accompanying the present that was Jason Priestley carving his own image out of ham that was then sent to me it was one of my best dreams <laughs> if, if the makers of Sharknado are listening then I think you've got your next franchise I'm in <laughs> Was the ham like? Was it carved out of like a big lump of ham? No, or was it, it was like, like that flat ham yeah, like that the had teddy bear on one. It. Yeah, you know the teddy. Oh, it was like that, but yeah. with Jason Priestley's face on. And I sent a message nice. to the friend who, in the dream, had sent it, and he was like, "Oh, we just sent you some chocolates. That is a much better idea." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many bits. Like when they survive the hurricane, when they go to that airport place. And they had survived the hurricane by standing behind one single sheet of corrugated iron. (laughs) (laughs) Like when they first pull into that place, the airport, as they call it, they comment that there's an old people's home next door. right? Mm -hmm. And then the action moves to the old people's home. To be clear, some of those people weren't old. They were just people with white wigs (laughs) on. Old people are really cheap to employ, everybody knows. But when when they cut to that, all the old people are at the swimming pool as if they haven't just noticed that a hurricane just <laughs> literally destroyed the airport next door to them. It's just there is no logic to it. It is insane. 
every time they had to have a plot line where the car breaks down, they go, oh, no, the engine is flooded. They say that twice. And I can't work out whether that's because they like the joke flooded because there's water or whether it's whoever wrote it doesn't know what else goes wrong with cars. Oh, I don't know. What happens to cars? Engines flood. Maybe, yeah, maybe in the same way that they've clearly never seen weather or sharks, they've never seen a car before. You know, at the, at the very end, when... Um, a oh, spoiler, uh, when uh, Finn climbs out of the shot, like we just, he soars his way out of the shot. Oh, come on, Sarah, you must be making that up. No <laughs> film would ever put that in. <laughs> he chainsaws his way out of the stomach of a shark, and then he's obviously yeah. dripping with blood, and his ex wife, not his wife, his ex wife, uh, wipes a little bit of blood off his face and then gives yeah. him a proper kiss. And I just leant over to Gary and said, I don't even like kissing you when you've just been on the treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way, like, a, a current wife wouldn't even do it. An ex-wife certainly wouldn't do it. No. We did have a little bet with what was going to happen at the end. After he first, like, comes down and you think he's dead, you think he's been eaten by a shark, uh, by a shark and they're standing around. And my nephew said, I bet he emerges a weird shark. And my brother said, I bet he pulls her, <laughs> the girl, out of the... And we went, How never! And then it that? fucking happened! <laughs> what you have to do is you have to guess the most ridiculous thing that would next happen. And that was the most ridiculous thing that would next happen. And it did happen. Because the idea that, like, the sharks are being moved around in the air by the by the tornado or by the hurricane however you want to describe it they continue the sharknado yeah it's not a shuriken (laughs) (laughs) shuriken or a shawm oh the shawm is finnican anyway so this finnican is going round and and the sharks continue to fly around in the air even when that isn't a thing they continue to fall down even when the hurricane's passed so it's so ridiculous because she had been eating a good five minutes. We were supposed to expect that shark had still been falling for all of that time. But what am I doing trying to find logic? <laughs> I think it's important that everyone knows that there are six of these. Uh, and my nephew tells me the last one's about time travel. So great. <laughs> Let's watch those next week. <laughs> no, please. At the start, I have to mention, it's there are a, a ridiculous amount of bums and tit shots at the start, which I... Um, really early tits. Didn't enjoy at all. Really gratuitous. Oh, yeah. One more thing. I completely love the fact that at some point they tried to anchor this in the real world a tiny bit. And that was via a news report that said, this is apparently happening because of global warming. And then they moved on because that, that makes it seem a lot less bad science, doesn't it? It's a little bit like snakes on a plane in that the title tells you everything. It's not like you're going to be like, I wonder what's going to happen. What? There's a show, there's a tornado full of sharks. We know, we know. It's in the title. I like the ones that are self-explanatory immediately. I like it. I, I kind of feel like this about. might be a result of snakes on the plane, to be honest. I feel like yeah. that snakes on a plane probably sharks in the sky at the, the mother of <laughs> this yeah sharks in the sky but i think you have to review it on that basis you can't review sharknado in the same way you would look at jaws you have to review it as a film that's called itself sharknado oh, yeah. you know it's it's not trying to win an oscar is it i think for what it was trying to do it did it i just i don't want what it what it was offering <laughs> <laughs>
Shall we count up? I think I've got four, maybe five, depending on what you'll allow. Mine's pretty quick. Let's get this over and done with. <laughs> Pet survives carnage. For some reason, woman locks dog in own car and God, George has to break open the window with his bar stool. Uh, but there we go. Pet survives carnage. But I have to find my son. And nature, you cruel sharknado in bastard. That's what we're having for that. <laughs> Running away from explosion. I feel like there was an explosion earlier. Was that on the boat? I ticked it. And I think it was quite early on. There was an explosion. The house exploded. Oh, maybe that's it then. I have ticked it, so running away from explosion. Um, I'm really not dressed for this shit. Um, I've put that down because <laughs> she was working in a bar in a bikini and I'm going to judge her. Judge him for yeah. making him his spa staff wear bikinis. Well, I never liked him on Beverly Hills, so fuck him. <laughs> uh, so, and he never made me his own face out of ham, did he? No. <laughs> it's crazy, but it might just work. Uh, yes, the bit where Every they decide to... Yeah, the whole thing, the hmm. first initial concept of the film. Uh, but the bit <laughs> when they fly in to the... When they chuck a bomb from a from the helicopter, yeah. that one, and waist deep in water, I mean, all deep in water, all the time. Mm-hmm. And the one that's a question mark is Blue Peter Quality Models, because I would argue it was Blue Peter Quality CGI. But I don't know if I'm allowed that, because it's not models. I would let you have There were that. definitely models as well. When they're fighting the yeah. one in the house, oh, which yeah, that's is made true. from... It was basically Tracy Island, wasn't it? Painted shark <laughs> coloured. So that's five from me. Thank you. Tunnel, only an idiot would try to go through. They go for a tunnel. It gets infested with sharks, like everything else. Provably bad science. I think <laughs> no no you're gonna have to give me a specific example <laughs> um this disaster saved our relationship yep and can you smell burning I mean there's some burning in it isn't there yeah okay I've got old person sacrifice and by that I mean anyone over the age of 40 because this <laughs> film genuinely genuinely seems to think that old people are just young people with wigs on but John Hurd was the oldest character in it yep. and did sacrifice himself for a dog yeah. so yes good man thing you can't do meaning you definitely die in this film f- throw bombs into a hurricane <laughs> from a helicopter it's not a hurricane it's a short hurricane so many traffic jams um, I don't know if I'm allowed that considering they disappear at will and they come back again <laughs> My eye is the CGI, and I feel like just getting one point for that is doing me out of something. Local news reports, it was all going so well until I said sharks weren't really floating around, and then I instantly (laughs) got eaten by one. And the last one I'm going to have a pop at is Shame Star, because I feel like anyone who made this should feel ashamed. I would agree with that. It catapulted them back into the mainstream, Hannah. Oh, that is a good point. Okay, I won't have that. So I've got one, two, three, four, five, six. So you win. The winner. In that case, I have discovered that 1974's Earthquake, starring Perpetual Man of the Future, Charlton Heston, is currently on YouTube available to rent. So maybe we should watch that. Yep. I think we're going to be in swarm slash avalanche territory again, which I have to say is my favourite form of disaster film. Just great. Stupid. What about Crabquake? <laughs> Standard issue for all women. <laughs>